0: You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. You can find show notes linking to everything we talk about in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com. Well, it's been a lively couple of weeks since the last episode. So before we get into the interview with Alex Genov, I wanted to give you a few updates from the Mechs community. Uh, Now, Alex Guest, the uh, co-host for the podcast, wasn't able to make it along for this recording. But we were both at the launch of Innovate UK's Design Foundations funding event in London last week. This is a significant one and it should be of interest to anyone in the UK working in the area of experience design. What's happening is Innovate UK is making available £3 million, a uh, million pounds in the, the first round, to fund early stage design innovation with individual grants that range from £20,000 up to a £100,000. And there's a couple of notable things about this particular competition. Firstly, Where most Innovate UK competitions have been aligned to particular verticals or certain technologies, this one is very much horizontal in its approach. And it's intended to bring design expertise into organizations which might not otherwise be able to afford it. Secondly, it's deliberately focused on early stage experimental design work, getting good design thinking into companies right at the start of the process. So we've put up a full write-up at mobileuserexperience.com explaining why we think it should be of interest to the MEX community and as well, a few hopes about how this particular funding might be used and what kind of results it might bring for the industry as a whole. So I'd recommend taking a look uh, and also following the links there to all of Innovate UK's details about the competition, which explains the dates and the, the application process and so on. Uh, we've also got a new feature out this week at mobileuserexperience.com, uh, where Alex Guest is talking about his results from a bit of a digital detox experiment, uh, and in particular, the Punked MP01 dumb phone Now, those are the manufacturer's words, not mine. They deliberately describe this product as a dumb phone, the back-to-basics alternative to a smartphone, if you like. And they kindly sent us one to try after we mentioned it in a previous article and on some previous podcasts, I think, at mobileuserexperience.com. Anyway, take a look. It's uh, an interesting feature which Alex has written up, and it's up there for you to browse on the website. So... On to today's interview. Now I was introduced to Alex Genov by our Mex collaborator, Patrizia Bertini, who's been following his work for some time as a fellow pioneer of of user research methods herself. Alex is the head of user experience research at Zappos, uh, a retailer which takes its commitment to customer experience pretty seriously. Uh, It's now part of Amazon, and is known amongst other things for committing to the organizational principles of the holacracy. Uh, We go on to talk a bit about that in the interview and how it influences the way user research is done, uh, as well as how you build trust in retail experiences, emerging technologies which are influencing user research, uh, and Alex's own career path, which has taken him from a PhD in experimental social psychology to leading user research at one of the web's most well-known retail brands. So here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Marek Pawlowski, the founder of MEX, and I'm delighted to be joined on the show today by Alex Genov head of user experience research at zappos alex thanks for taking the time to join us
1: thank you mark it's uh, it's an honor and i'm delighted to join you
0: so we have a little bit of a tradition
1: on the mex
0: podcast that we start the discussion with what we call our show and tell section um, and i know uh you've gone off and had a bit of a think about something that you might like to share with the listeners upfront around some of the things you've been doing in customer research uh, to try and break down and work across those sort of organizational silos, which can sometimes get in the way of getting really good user insight. So how's that been working for you at Zappos?
1: It's been uh, working really great, Mark. Um, we'll, we'll chat later on about the organization of Zappos and how unique it is. Um, it actually enables this out-of-the-box thinking. And uh, so what we've been doing at Zappos in terms of user research is think, step back and think about the big picture and trying to really understand our customers as people. So that's the big idea, understanding customers as people, not just as shoppers, not just as website visitors, not just as um, people who look around the website, click on the website and so on. So the big idea is understand customers as people and then to do that, you need to approach them from every possible angle, right? You can um, You can talk to them, you can survey them, you understand what uh, what their behavior on the website is. Um, and that um, kind of activity is is very challenging in a traditional organization where you have a very rigid corporate organization, very rigid org chart where you have silos and you have the different groups have their own little turfs so for example market research is going to have their own turf uh, that's different from user research and usability and that's going to be different from web analytics possibly so when you when you have such an organization you have um, these uh, separate interests essentially and everybody's doing their own research and at the end of the day, the danger of such an approach is um, you get to a point where it's almost like the fable of the blind man and the elephant, where um, everybody is describing the customer, but they're talking about different things. And nobody has this 360 view of the customer as a whole, especially the customer as a person.
0: So were you able to do this from the outset at Zappos, or was there you know, a, a task for you to try and build that kind of rapport within the organization to be able to work across those silos?
1: Actually it was it was possible from the very beginning. And just to, to give you a little bit of a background and how it was possible, I'll let me kind of give you my my journey a little bit. So my educational background is in experimental social psychology. And that kind of set me on a on a path of really trying to understand um, understand people with a, with a view of, um, you know, the, the, the research and methods of, of psychology. My focus in, in grad school was understanding emotions and how they get generated, how they get uh, described, and how they get measured. So that kind of foundation gave me a, a really kind of solid footing um, in terms of of the methods that I've been using later on. And then uh, some of my kind of formative years were with uh, State Farm Insurance, which were very big on usability. We had a huge usability lab. We did a lot of really um, quick iterative usability studies. Then I joined TurboTax, into its TurboTax, and um, they also made huge investments in usability eye tracking, a lot of different kinds of research. However. There these silos existed that I mentioned and and market research, for example, they had a huge research budget that they had to spend every year. and so a lot of that was outsourced, right? So I never had the chance to to really partake in that kind of research.
0: So that's interesting, you know when that was happening because I'm guessing you know looking back to to say the time with um, state farm, uh, insurance you know that must have been at a time that insurance companies themselves were still really kind of in the experimental phase with a lot of um, these approaches to digital and how they took their products uh, yeah into digital and you know with the sort of background that you had while you were studying i mean was it Obvious to you that your path was going to lead you into digital at that stage, or did it just happen that you know those two things were developing at the same time? That these companies were starting to get interested in digital and starting to get interested in applying these kind of insights to them.
1: Yeah, I mean, by the time I joined, they were very well on their path. I mean, they were pretty advanced um, So this was around 2001, and at that time, I just had finished grad school and um, I was. Thinking about maybe becoming a professor, that was like one obvious path, but um, it was—I uh, mean—I gave up that idea quickly because um, I didn't want to be um, struggling financially for many years to come. So I decided to basically uh, join the, the corporate world at that point. And when I joined State Farm, um, you're right. There was at that time there was a there was a big push to to move on to digital. So they had developed a really great website and they also were enabling a big, big uh, contingent of um, agents, independent agents to move to digital. So moving all the forms from paper to digital and that was, that was a huge undertaking. But at that point, um, they were so well ahead of the game that they had invested um, in a multimillion dollar usability lab, for example. So it wasn't just like it. It wasn't. It was far from just the beginning of that process. And then um, later on, TurboTax, of course, it was all digital. And um, and there it was uh, very consumer focused. So that was the beginning of my kind of consumer focused work.
0: So uh, you know when you were at TurboTax, how did the user base there change compared to, to state farm? you know, what did you find was the new challenge that you were moving on to in that transition?
1: So at, at that point, it's not so much that the user base changed, but it was um, it was the jobs to be done that changed. and I'm sure you're aware of uh, Clay Christensen's uh, metaphor or model of jobs to be done. So essentially the the domain was the same which was finances and financial services. But with TurboTax it was a very specific task which was to complete and file your taxes yourself using software. And um, and there some of the challenges were the biggest competition at the time of of TurboTax was uh, actual uh, preparer. So people would go to... Uh, accountants to get their, their taxes done, and um, one of the big uh, kind of challenges was to, to convince people to, first of all, to, to create software that was very easy to use, and then also to kind of break that myth that um, that a person is always going to be more accurate than software, and there were very, very interesting challenges, and, and their uh, usability was and ease of use was uh, the number one priority. Um, very interestingly, with that product, it was a very solid kind of metaphor of the step-by-step hand-holding process. But the big challenge was how the product communicated with the customer via via the, the language of uh, on the screen. And uh, one of the big undertakings there was to make sure that um, the questions that the product was asking were understandable and intuitive to people who are not accountants or tax experts. So that was, a, that was kind of a, a big um, eye-opening uh, moment for me because you would think usability is all about the interface. In this case, the interface was very, very intuitive, uh, but it was the language that the product was using that um, was the biggest opportunity for improvement.
0: Yeah, I mean, that shared language, that shared vocabulary between the user and the service provider and quite often we seem to find that that's at the heart of how you form that long-term trusted relationship which I'm, I'm guessing when it comes to matters of finance that that's got to be you know, a big part of how you get those people to become habitual users and as you say when your your competition is the relationship that they have with another human being their tax accountant that they may have been working with for a number of years yeah you know, that probably amplifies that challenge of getting them to be able to trust uh, a piece of technology which perhaps they're not accustomed to
1: and that's exactly right mark so you you're exactly you hit the nail on the head it was about trust and it was about confidence um, when using the product because this was a very particular product where you can go through the screens and it's easy to advance you click next and so on answer questions but at the end um, you as a user may not be sure if you completed it correctly or you got to the end. But um, did you get the correct result, right? And that was, um, it, it was very important to reassure people um, that, that they're, they're doing the right thing, to ask them the right questions and to prevent them from making errors, right? That that was the whole uh, kind of crux of, of of doing the work.
0: So is there a way that you developed to try and measure that trust between the user and, and the product? Or was it something that you... Just looked to be self-evident in the way their overall relationship or their overall usage of the product improved.
1: So, of course, the, the usage uh, was was a key uh, key metric, and um, TurboTax was a product where you know you have only a hundred days in the year where you can you make your money for, for the most part, and so it was a season seasonal activity, and um, we we track not only. Um, the transactions, but also uh, net the net promoter score. So how people felt about the product, and we collected, I mean, millions of data points. <clears throat> and the net promoter score, the sentiment of the customer was very uh, was taken very seriously. Um, also at, the, at that time, uh, we worked to develop a measure of uh, exceeded expectations or wow. You know, everybody was talking about like wow at the time, wowing the customers, but really took steps to. To quantify that, to define it, and to quantify it, um, and what we found was that the best predictor of this is kind of wow, or um, th- this emotional reaction was when you exceed expectations. So we developed a specific metric to measure that, and that's something that I also kind of brought in to to, to Zappos, which very interestingly, Zappos, uh, much earlier than, than TurboTax, um, was founded on the, this whole... Concept of exceeding customer expectations and wowing them.
0: So, was that one of the things which drew you to the role at Zappos to, to make that transition?
1: Um, yeah. So, I mean, Zappos is a is a unique unique company, and um, it, it's so customer focused that um, that that's that was one of the the most kind of important things for me, and also one of the the biggest kind of challenges that I saw in opportunities was to. To take that experience, which is the customer service experience, when when you call on the phone, for example, and to bring um, bring that same experience to the digital uh, world in terms of uh, of Zappos website.
0: So when you joined then, Zappos um, already had that reputation for its customer experience commitment and, and particularly around the, the, the phone service. But were, were you able to transfer bits of that directly across to digital or was it more a case of having to transpose some of those and, and, and adapt them?
1: So it's been, it's been a really, um, really great journey of, of, of doing that. And, and so to, to answer your question from before in terms of, of the silos, um, when I joined, well, first of all, uh, you would think when you join a company, you take the first couple of weeks to, to relax and to meet people and so on. Well, here at Zappos, everybody who joins, regardless of rank or previous experience, starts with uh, four weeks of intense call center training. So essentially, you get... We get to the basement and we start learning the basics of our customer service. And then from the third day, we're on the phones already, helping customers return, shop and so on.
0: So you're getting right uh, in with the customers from the outset. I mean, w- what's that like? What's the, the call center environment like? Was that something that you had experience of previously? Or was that a, a whole new thing for you to be there with a, a presumably a bank of telephones and uh, you know, on the phone all day with customers.
1: It was a pretty. It was a new experience for me. I mean, I, I was used to interacting with people because of my work, right? I've I've done a lot of interviews. I've done a ton of usability studies. So, interacting with customers and with people was just like in my DNA. But it's a very different environment where you know you have like a group of people. That's it's a bit noisy, and then you have to. Here, the customer, you have to be really nice, empathize with them, like create an emotional connection with them and at the same time help them while navigating, you know, our internal systems and so on. And you're helping them with their like monitoring transaction and it's, it can be very, very stressful. But that creates really a great empathy for the customer and, and not only do we go through that initial four week training every year Uh, Around holiday times, everybody jumps on the phones for about like 10 hours, including the CEO, everybody, and and is helping customers with their transactions.
0: Well, in terms of having a a real commitment throughout the organization to being customer-centered, yeah, that feels like a key piece of that. These days with the way a lot of organizations, particularly those which have thriving digital channels, are structured, is that inherently there are layers between the employees and the customers, and that sort of FaceTime or you know those one-to-one interactions with the customers start to diminish. But being able to create time within everyone's roles to do that, I think, brings that sense of, of reality back. And you know, just going back to, to one of those things you, you said earlier i think that creates quite an interesting opportunity there to perhaps be able to understand how for customers often it's as much about the emotional journey they're on with a particular challenge or inquiry or whatever it is that they're they're coming to an organization with as it is about the logical practical challenge that they're trying to solve and you know, I'd be interested to know you know, if you, you experience that with the call centers or whether that's something that you plan for is how you start to address, if you like, the, the emotional um, state of the customer, perhaps even before you've started to address the practical challenge for them to make sure that they feel like they're being listened to and that there is going to be a good resolution to whatever inquiry they've come with. Even if it's going to take some time for the organization to actually you know, deliver on that in a, a practical sense.
1: Exactly. So, so Mark, this is exactly what what made Zappos exceptional, and this is at the at the foundation of what made Zappos uh, successful. So very early on, when when a lot of companies, even nowadays, they consider uh, customer service a cost to be reduced, right? To be managed and reduced. Zappos understood that the transactional is important, but what's even more important is, is this emotional connection to the customer. So with that in mind, um, Zappos customer service is pretty unparalleled, so we don't have any call limit, time limits. So we can spend like an hour with the customer, two hours. The longest time was over 10 hours of somebody spoke with the customer. They took one or two breaks and continued to chit-chat. I personally have been... On call. So for example, when I was training, I was listening in a call um, and my mentor at the time spent like an hour and a half with somebody who was bedridden and uh, called to talk about shoes, but they ended up talking about their illness and about other things. And then it's, it's very common afterwards for after such a call for the customer service rep of Zappos to write a note and send flowers to, to, that, to that customer. So the customer service reps at Zappos are measured, of course, by the resolution, but more importantly, if they created an emotional connection to the customer. So we're instructed to, to try to find common grounds to talk about something, right? So we don't put customers on hold. Um, customarily, um, you, you, try to, you, you try to fill silences with kind of conversation, try to understand the customer and and that that's very important and all of us have experienced really poor customer service where you you're you're anxious um, about your transaction and then on top of that you're made to feel worse by kind of feeling you're being blamed and so on so this all is kind of is kind of handled by by the Zappos customer service in in a completely customer focused way well it, it
0: would seem to come back you know to this initial project that you introduced for our show and tell or or initial approach rather this idea that you you have to be able to understand your customers your users whatever term you want to apply to that group of people you have to be able to understand them as people and individuals uh, as opposed to you know just their relationship with the business Um, but I think a lot of companies still struggle to actually put that into action. Even if they pay lip service to the concept, it seems there's quite a a distance between believing in the concept and actually making that happen in action. As you say, with things like having unlimited time on the phones with people and, and going that extra step to really deliver an experience that people didn't uh, didn't necessarily expect.
1: Exactly, exactly, Mark, and and it, it's that sort of. Unconventional thinking and that uh, that commitment and investment in that that is still quite uncommon and and it's it's this experience that exceeds expectations and then is related to the whole net promoter concept, where um, it net promoter not only measures customer satisfaction but it also measures word of mouth. So you're not you, your experience was so great that you you are burning to tell other people about it, right? Or it can be really bad, so you tell others not to go anywhere near that company, right? But that's the idea of the net promoter score, and what we found with really interesting empirical data is that the the net promoter score is really related to this exceeded expectations uh, score. So it's a really big idea because... If you're measuring satisfaction and you say, how was your experience? And you say, well, it was as I expected, as expected, which is in the middle of the scale. Let's say you have an 11-point scale. You give us a five and maybe some companies will say, okay, that, that's not bad, right? It's in the middle. It's neutral. It's okay. But what we found is that in that area, you have a lot of detractors also and a lot of um, new people who are passive, right? The, the actual promoters are only at the, the high end of the scale uh, or the people who you really exceeded their expectations. And then the challenge for any company is this is a very dynamic notion of, of expectations because you provide great service, then expectations reset, and now you have to do even more to exceed those, right? Or you have to find new people to wow, new customers. Um, but so that's kind of... Um, With that in mind, um, so going back to the first project when I joined Zappos, it was um, after my my training here, um, I had a series of conversations with people and uh, one opportunity was apparent, which was Zappos was pivoting to a new strategy at the time and they wanted to do some some research with customers but the initial idea was to do 50 interviews or so Um, but what we realized was that At the time, there was a really, really solid transactional segmentation of of the customer base, but uh, what was missing was a really good um, psychographic segmentation to supplement that. So we offered to do uh, this project of a big market uh, psychographic segmentation, and it was really well received uh, by the leadership, and we did that uh, very quickly. Internally, with the help of a consultant, uh, we did it in five weeks, and uh, really with a, on a shoestring budget, which is one of the core values of Zappos, is do more with less, and that kind of set the foundation of this kind of research, um, and in another company, that would have been the domain of market research. So then, you know, other, other groups would have been involved or you had to ask for permission and so on. It probably would have been very difficult to execute. So when you have, so the big idea here is that when you have one group of people that coordinates this research across all the, all the groups without any silos, then you, you are able to inform with one solid research study, you are able to inform not only marketing, but also UX, and also uh, merchandising and uh, strategy. So all the groups across. So you, when you design a study to understand, you know, customers as people, then you are much more open to your hands are untied, right? To um, to inform different parts of the organization.
0: Where does that come from though within the organization? because I think you know those those principles are probably things which a lot of companies would see the logic of um, but not every company would actually be able to, enact or get the motivation among the diverse departments and, and silos that are needed to be able to take those things on and to be able to get that overarching view and that overarching action off the back of it. So is there something... Yeah, you can put your finger on particularly with Zappos, which created that enthusiasm, which created that appetite for all of those you know, diverse participants to want to be part of a study like that and to take on board its, its lessons.
1: I'm sure it, it is. I mean, it's the, the essence of Zappos is uh, its core values. And a lot of it is humility and being yourself. And uh, so we have a set of, of 10, 10 core values the way they're exemplified or embodied here at Zappos is nobody has an office, for example, right? Not even the CEO. They, they have desks just like the call center folks. And so there's also with the new structure of, of holacracy, um, which you probably have, have heard about, um, the, the traditional org chart does not exist, essentially, and it's replaced by It's still a hierarchy, but it's a different, it's a very organic type of hierarchy. Um, It's called, um, it's organically formed groups of people that that are called circles. And so the the key point of holacracy is that the organization is formed or organized around the work, not around individuals or people, right? And so when you have that, then uh, you have... Uh, much more uh, open-mindedness about these projects. So, in the case of, um, I'll give you an example of, of how that worked for me, or for the the research group uh, in general. Um, when when we joined, uh, when I joined Zappos, there was a, it's a small research group that we have. Um, we started looking at, for example, the way we gather feedback from the website, and that presented as a, as a huge opportunity because at the time. Um, not a lot of folks were looking at that feedback that came from the website. So to um, to kind of put holocracy to work, um, I organized a, a group or a circle called Voice of the Best Customer. And it was a journey to make it, you know, official and so on um, to get people to join. Uh, it's almost like organizing a little startup, right? You convince people to join your, your group. And um, we started developing, um, you know, the, the survey mechanisms on the website, the reporting mechanisms to the point where now there's groups within the company that uh, won't make any major decisions without reading the, the customer comments or understanding what, how customers feel. So this, this is one, one small success in that direction, right? And uh, there's much more work to be done, but nobody, no executive mandated this. Um, it was grassroots approach and uh, even to the point where we had to convince one developer to create our little internal survey tool for us to start using
0: so for, for someone you know such as yourself who I guess you've made a, a career out of your passion for, for user research over you know, a number of years now you presumably have experienced those kind of structures in various different organizations, including you know, what you'd imagine to be some quite traditional structures, like in the world of insurance, for instance. And you know, at a practical level as a user researcher, you know, what would you say is, is the key thing for you which the holacracy enables you to do? Yeah, you know, Clearly you can get across those those silos and get people involved you know, who maybe wouldn't be able to to participate in those things in a more traditional structure. But when it comes to actually taking action off the back of those things, do you feel that the holacracy also contributes to that?
1: Um, For sure. I mean, philocracy is one of the systems for self-organization, right? You can, you can have many other systems. The the essence is self-organization, right? It's, um, it's not command and control, It's self-organization. And just as Zappos has picked that, that system and it, it goes together with, uh, with, uh, with software and so on to, to, to get things, uh, things moving and to keep things organized. But, but when, when you have self-organization, essentially you're telling people, you know, follow your passion. And as, as long as you understand the, the overarching goals of the organization, you're going to do well, right? And, and when, you, when you have an organization where, with principles about, about humility, about transparency, right? That, that's a big thing as well. Then you, when, when you do research and when you share it widely, right? Then you get more people excited about that. Then you start getting people from, you know, the whole organization coming to your group to ask to, to for help with research. Then you're in a position to um, inform even more people. So it's kind of this virtuous cycle, you know, of do more research, help more people, share it as widely as you can, and then more people are gonna come. And then when you have this common view, then for example, and, and you, 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 uh, another big component of that kind of transparency thing and documentation is um, to, um, to, to, of course, document without, without overdoing it, um, but then um, to, to have like an online uh, avenue for sharing and, and storing the information that's accessible to as many people as possible. Even the raw data, that, that's one of our kind of um, principles is be transparent, share the data. Um, and that kind of breeds trust and, and also creates more work for us, which is a good thing.
0: <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you um, think about those those circles, um, yeah, for something like that project you, you mentioned there about the, the voice of, of the best customer, what would be the, the typical sort of composition there in terms of the, the talents that different people are bringing to it? Obviously, you have the user research experience from your career, but would you also be working alongside, you know, say, visual designers or people with big data expertise? You know, what's the typical sort of makeup of a circle like that?
1: The makeup of the voice of the, the best customer team is very diverse. It includes user research. It includes um, data science. Includes uh, customer service folks, some finance folks, and uh, and also um, an engineer who helps um, create those uh, kind of the survey platforms and so on. So um, on that group you asked, uh, do we have visual designers? Uh, we don't have visual designers in that group, but we collaborated with visual with our visual designers for the first project we did here. And um, what they did was in in a matter of like a week, they spun up a website, interactive website, where we visualized um, the the insights or the data from from the segmentation study, but also started supplementing it with um, additional data. Like um, we conducted 30 phone interviews with customers. So we uploaded the actual recordings and the transcripts to the website. Um, Then we, uh, based on additional research, we created uh, personas for some of our key segments and we uploaded that. We created uh, personas subsites linked to that main website. So this is kind of our pride and joy. Um, Everybody is really, who I've shared this with, is very intrigued and um, very interested in this approach because it is it breaks away from the traditional way of sharing insights with documents uh, you know powerpoint decks or god forbid word documents and so on do you
0: think there's something about the the way you present that which i guess gives the sense that it it's collaborative for, at its heart you know i think when you put across something in a PowerPoint to someone or in a document, you know, there's that sense of finality to it, that the user research team has gone off and they've done this research and these are their findings. But I'm guessing if you're putting it across in that more interactive form where there's a chance for the people, that the users of those data to be able to to interact with it, you create that dialogue just in the, the, the nature of the way you've structured it.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I mean, we can take that much further in terms of, Enable people to comment, to ask questions, and so on. We have another platform for that, which is Confluence, which is another interactive kind of documentation website. Um, but but another aspect of this, and what you something you said made me think about that is, we, we've also based on on data, we've created these interactive dashboards. So again, imagine the alternative of. Having doing a big study and then having um, hundreds upon hundreds of uh, cross tab you know, visualizations, uh, the, the old way was to copy and paste uh, images of that into PowerPoint. So you end up with like hundreds of, of, um, of pages of PowerPoint. Whereas here we have these interactive dashboards where you have a question of how is, does that variable uh, relate to, to that variable, and you can go and play around yourself. Uh, with that and get answers to that question. So that takes the interactivity um, many steps further.
0: Is that a circular relationship in the sense that your ability to present those data in a more interactive way as the findings of the study, does that influence then the kind of questions, the kind of insights you can try to get from customers in the first place?
1: Um, I mean, exactly. So it's when when you... Um, are helpful to the organization. That's what we're, we're here to be helpful to the organization, not to do research in an academic way, you know, some kind of pure, to find some kind of pure truth or something, uh, but to help the organization with, with their questions, their pressing needs. Then we get um, even, even more um, interesting questions, right? And, and that's been kind of a key to, to the success of the group is, um, listen to, understand the needs of the organization, and then be helpful, right? And then even go, um, we can read between the lines sometimes and we can offer different methods because um, because we understand the methodology part. And a lot of other organizations struggle with this kind of conundrum of we get you know product managers or executives come to us and tell us to do X, Y, and Z, impose methods on us, then I think the problem is that um, if somebody is sitting there passively asked, waiting for work to be given to them, then you can get into that situation. But if you're very active in understanding the business needs, then you're going to be very proactive offering the solutions. And then people on the other side are going to be happy to to listen to you. So one of the things which
0: yeah interested me about your work overall, Alex, is that it is within you know, broadly the area of, of retail with Zappos. Now, you're going back to something we talked about early on about that notion of trust that you experienced um, when you were with the, the TurboTax project. Uh, do you think that that's the, the same concept within retail? Uh, compared to what you experienced within finance, or have you had to to adjust the way you perceive and and measure that among customers in, in the the retail space?
1: Um, that's a very perceptive question, Mark. Um, I think it's a it's a very it's a com- it's a common pervasive issue, and uh, it, the question of trust is uh, is applicable to to many domains, including finances, including in retail. Part of it is a financial transaction, right? You you're giving a company your money. You expect to get something back, so so it is a matter of trust indeed, and a lot of it is um, that the trust with Zappos has been built through its exceptional customer service and through its uh, digital experience. We have a we have a solid website, uh, we have a huge selection, and so it's these are the pillars of, of the, the Zappos success: its customer service, selection, it's um, you know meeting customer needs. Um, where we can, we can do much better is uh, in terms of personalization. That's one of our key areas of, of developing the digital experience. Personalization, understanding your needs and, um, and even helping you find what, what you're looking for. Um, and that, that's an issue when you have a huge selection, right, with, with any, any product or website.
0: Absolutely. I mean, are there any things that you're seeing emerging on the technology front which are exciting you about what might be possible with personalization in the future?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean it's we have we have a lot of the resources of Amazon at our disposal and they're they're a tremendous company. they're they're an awesome technology company. We have data scientists, we have a team of of analysts beyond user research, uh, an awesome team of analysts and uh, data scientists and so on. And um, I, I believe we're just scratching the surface. Um, and the, the big opportunity, again, in, in the vein of understanding people and their overarching goals is to step back and understand why, why is this person uh, coming to our website? It, yes, to, to buy something, but, but why, right? And when you ask the five whys, uh, at least, then you may understand that they have some kind of event, right, or personal, um, or personal goal, they want to, to dress in a certain way, to, to present themselves in a certain way. So you, you have to tie their shopping behavior to their personality, for example, or to their deeper, more meaningful goals. And then you're going you're gonna to have much bigger success and you're going to build more trust and so on. So that's kind of the biggest challenge now is to think beyond the transactional, to think beyond shopping and to say, why, are, why is this person here?
0: Yeah, it is interesting to me, you know how much commonality there seems to be. You know, once you get it down to that motivational level, that both retail and finance, by their nature, are almost expressions which sort of track the personality of the particular customers involved. In fact, we had a guest on the podcast um, earlier in twenty sixteen. Uh, richard lewis who um, has had a, a career which in some ways i guess has paralleled your own moving between large retailers uh, and banks seeing both sides of it from the retail perspective and the finance industry perspective but i suspect for similar reasons that yeah, you end up coming back to that that question of well how do we understand these deeper motivations which drive people's financial behaviors or, or their retail behaviors and that often the, those motivations are the the core of it
1: um yes mark so th- there are Uh, you're absolutely right about these parallels between um, finance and and retail. In in terms of financial transactions, um, you know, money is kind of an important aspect of of our society and and our way of life. So if you're concerned about the security of those transactions, about your financial security, um, that's deeply personal. So on the the retail side, you know, there, there's different levels of that personalization or that that kind of personal nature, um, and that's that's something that, for example, makes Zappo stand out from from other say retailers of, of of gadgets or other items, clothing, or you know, another word for soft goods is is much more personal, right? You can think of clothing reflects on on who people are. Um, versus buying other objects like a toaster it may also kind of reflect on on your taste and so on but um, but it's much uh, more um, kind of practical and and that's where you get kind of this interesting interplay of Re understanding personal motivations when it comes to shopping for shoes, clothes, handbags, and so on.
0: Uh, And you know, when you think about some of the uh, technologies which um, might influence some of the, the user behaviors that you might see in retail in the future. Yeah, Are there any things on your horizon at the moment which are, are getting you excited about that aspect of, of emerging technology, not so much on the operational side, but more on the the side of what you can actually do at the, um, the, the customer experience end?
1: Absolutely, Mark. So we've had some experience piloting. Um, for example, visual search is, is kind of a big um is a big thing. and we did uh, partner with um, with a company that that essentially consists of a lot of uh, data scientists who develop um, you know technology that um, just by analyzing images can parse the different um, aspects of the object to you know colors, materials, stitching, shapes, and so on. So this kind of technology is much more interactive and can enable a completely different type of search experience. So that's exciting. Another kind of um, personal interest of mine is um, understanding and measuring emotions through nonverbal ways. So we have done eye tracking in the past, and we've also partnered with another company that analyzes um, facial expressions uh, and translates them into emotion automatically via the web, web camera of, um, of um, you know, computers, right, uh, laptops and so on. Uh,
0: how interesting. We, we did have a, a speaker at uh, our Mech 16 event in London back in October who specialized in that area, um, a guy called Aaron Garner whose speciality is micro-expressions. Looking for those um, very subtle flickers of true emotion before people start to modulate their response through you know, social etiquette or their reaction to the particular situation they're in, trying to get into those really deep emotions. And I believe um, his organisation was also working with the university on trying to explore how some of that might be digitised. Uh, did, did you find that was um, you know, led to successful results for you? guys?
1: Um, yes, we, we did uh, analyze some of our like some commercials um, and um, so the next kind of step is to try to employ that while people are using the website, for example, right? It, it's a slightly different application, but I believe it's possible. Um, so the, yeah, the micro expressions is a, is a great example. It's a subset of this larger idea of measuring emotions through facial expression. So the companies that we worked with, they measure the basic emotions of uh, and not only emotions, but also cognitive states like thinking or confused, um, mm-hmm. but but happy as well, smiling, right? All these, and uh, some are more relevant to, to retail. So, for example, the basic emotions include disgust and, and anger and fear, and uh, you don't hopefully you don't expect to see those while somebody's browsing your 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 website, right? Retail website. Um, it gets a bit more subtle, but the idea is, and that's kind of blue sky thinking, but what if you, um, you, you got people who you've built enough trust with to say, okay, can we uh, fire off your web camera and um, kind of observe your face while you're shopping on our website and maybe we can figure out what you really like even without Kind of you being able to verbalize that, right? That would be pretty awesome.
0: A brave new frontier, um, which I guess is kind of the you know the the exciting thing looking to the future of of retail. Um, you know, I'm intrigued as to how yeah that whole area of user research is is going to evolve in response to some of the the, the broader changes which are happening with retail. Uh, and the um, example I was thinking of for our show and tell part of this podcast on my site um, was something I came across um, from Volvo, the car manufacturer, where um, they now have a service in Sweden in three of the major cities in, in Sweden, including Stockholm, the, the capital, where it's now possible to have the goods that you've ordered from a number of online retailers delivered directly to your vehicle wherever that vehicle happens to be and they're able to issue a digital key which allows the delivery driver when you're not present with the vehicle to open it for a limited period of time so that they can put the goods in there. They're not able to access anything else within the car, but they can just you know, leave your package there. Uh, and then the car automatically locks itself again. So it gets around that idea that to receive a delivery of goods from a retailer, from an online retailer, you need to actually be physically present to do it or at your home address or your work address to receive the package. And there seem to be a whole range of different innovations happening at all parts of that retail experience chain, which, you know, I guess for someone in the area of User research specific to, to retail at the moment, yeah, that must um, give you some some challenges to plan for for the future to be able to understand, you know, as that experience chain of retail becomes more complex, to understand how you can really track all of the uh, the user behavior across that.
1: You're absolutely right. So I guess what's at the at the bottom of all of this is establishing trust, right? So it either you know establishing trust for letting a stranger open your car or establishing trust to let a company saying, okay, let me record your face while you're shopping, right? So that's kind of the next frontier of trust, whereas in the past it was trust of, let me give you, give a company that I don't know if it even exists, I give them my credit card number and hope my package comes to my door.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how that trust is transferring across different sort of partners that are involved in delivering the overall experience. I mean, as you said, at one level, perhaps it's a trust that if I go ahead and do this transaction with an online retailer, or perhaps going back a few years, this was more acute for people. Maybe my credit card provider is going to guarantee me against there being any kind of fraud or whatever involved in that, so I can rely on them. But perhaps in the instance of something like this, where you're able to have goods delivered directly to your car, it's actually as much about the trust that you have in your car manufacturer putting their brand and their reputation on the line to say our digital key system for your vehicle is secure enough to be able to do this as it is trusting the retailer that, uh, that you're actually ordering the the goods from, you know, that that trust perhaps ends up being transferred across a number of partners in that scenario.
1: Exactly. I mean, so one of our key partners is UPS to deliver, you know, I mean, it's, they, they deliver the packages, but, but again, one, one exceptional aspect of our customer service is that we are trained and it's it's in our dna to always take the responsibility so the experience is your experience is our responsibility so even if the packages didn't get delivered by another company we apologize for that and we we own that um the whole experience
0: well look alex it's been fantastic to have the opportunity to talk through some of this with you uh, we're going to leave links in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com to all of these different things that we've talked about, the holocracy, some of these different examples of user research and the various companies we've mentioned so that the listeners can go and check those out. But th- there's always one question which um, yeah I'm interested to ask people who come and speak at our conferences or who come on the podcast, uh, which is to you know, look to the future a little bit and think yeah, you've obviously spent um, a good part of your career specializing in this area of user research but when you think to the the future are there any projects which you haven't yet had the chance to do uh, either at Zappos or at you know but potential future company that you'd really like to be able to to experiment with, you know, something perhaps um, a little bit, uh, you know, reaching into the, the future that you haven't yet had an opportunity to to do with one of your projects.
1: Yeah, so it's. I mean, Mark, if I have to pinpoint something, I would I would say I would say this kind of measuring measuring emotions uh, non verbally and, and non non obtrusively and uh, in a very kind of um, natural way and to feed that into um, into big data or small data to personalize experiences and to make uh, really customer experiences taken to the next level. Basically, that that would be the kind of overarching area that I would be interested in exploring.
0: Well, let's hope that's something that develops for digital industry as a whole because it sounds like something which is really quite foundational to taking digital experiences onto the, the next level for all different kinds of, of users. So, Alex, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a, a real pleasure, and I hope we'll have a chance to catch up again in the future.
1: Pleasure is all mine, Mark. Thank you so much.
0: And that's it for this edition. Do drop us a line. We're at MexFeed on Twitter, or you can email us Design talk at mobileuserexperience.com. There are show notes and a full archive of all of our previous episodes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.